from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I'm here with rector of damn near Kilder, Chris Prunty, along with continued special guest, Daniel Quinn. I have been waiting 17 letters so I could hit you with that one joke. And man, <laughs> all I can say is worth it. <laughs> anyway, on today's, on today's episode, we are continuing our dive into the world of solar punk as brought to you by listener Jason. In our last episode, we created a fantastical world full of plant GMO technology that just so happens to be a weird prison-like cell for humanity, but mostly it's so we get better. It's hopeful and bright, I promise. Just continue to listen. <laughs> On today's episode, we are talking about conflict. We are talking about technology, and we're each bringing our own faction into the world of a thousand pots here in our part two of Solar Punk. Chris, why don't you go ahead and start us off today? Uh, well, the idea for my technology comes from the Foundation novels. Uh, I think it's called Psychohistory, but I wanted Ooh. it to be something that was more related to the teaching of humanities. And as you know, I have a special place in my heart for the algorithm. So yes, as I, do we all. All hail the algorithm. I wanted it to be the algorithm that is teaching humanity, that is kind of designing this world and setting up what obstacles we need to be taught to overcome. I didn't have a word that was as catchy as psychohistory, but I thought uh, psychological permutation. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is kind of predicting where humanity will end up, the obstacles that we have, and how it has to teach us that. And so, yeah, uh, that is my technology. So I, I rather like that because it's uh, it flips the perverse algorithm that we had last time. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't, because the algorithm was also good to us in our last more dark cyberpunk future, wasn't it? It was kind of a question mark whether it was good or bad. It was originally good, I think, and then it ended up being bad. <laughs> well, because most, al well, it, algorithms, like all technology, are not necessarily inherently neutral. Yeah. It's based on the programmer. And I like the fact that Chris is bringing us a benevolent algorithm for once. But the way that it interacts with uh, humanity or with people themselves is the fact that it's integrated with humanity and with the conscious. So I thought the way that it would do this is the people who are uh, behind the the veil. So that, like the empaths? Yeah, the empaths. The reason they can do that is because the algorithm is allowing them to see their code, their feelings, and sharing the link. Um, and it is, not to get into my group, but they are the group of people who are kind of tweaking the things or looking and being like, yes, yes, we're all on board. We're currently doing this. But to make sure that we don't have uh, what I was saying earlier, the uh, perverse instantiation of where it would uh, cause some sort of negative result or where it would be like, no, humanity will never be ready because I need 100 on this test and there's no way to get 100. Hmm. So there's like an intuitiveness that's built into the, the algorithm. So like you said, perverse instantiation in the sense that like, we're not going to end up with some result that is like a result of logic since there's like the, the algorithm itself is embedded in the way human beings are. 
So imagine you're one of these people who can feel the empathy of 10 million people and also has the processing power or mind that uh, is boosted by this AI or algorithm. You would be able to reach, well, hopefully be able to reach a yes or no kind of answer for is humanity ready? Yeah, I think that we established uh, like the seekers of the veil or the people beyond the veil as like as super empaths in the last episode. And I love the fact that that kind of continues on with our with our. Um, we continue we, we kind of maintain that thread with this idea. Plus, I also want to integrate the idea of our technology, that this technology is available only because of this vast neural network that's created through genetically modified plants. Yeah, I, I want that's to bring that up too, yeah, to make sure yeah, it's biological. Yeah. I, I, I want there to be some connection between, like, because oftentimes you, humanity tends to see trees as, you know, like uncaring or having no emotion. And I love this idea that we discover immense empathy once we are connected into a vast neural network, specifically through plants. And I think that'd be kind of an interesting take to to have on it, you know? I have a feeling that Chris's faction will probably get into the people who are surrounding those empaths and maybe how that's set up. So I don't want to, I don't want to talk about that yet. I have a feeling that's where he's going, but like, it, it would be interesting to see like where these empaths reside, if they're beyond the veil and to what degree is it like enmeshed with nature? Because clearly like they're literally rooted into whatever this neural network is that surrounds or surrounds and kind of appears through the veil itself. So speaking of like the genetically modified plants and everything like that, uh, I want to bring up my technology since we're starting with technology. I want there to be an effective immortality with humanity. That is again, mostly because we are now, well, be, because there's this idea in solar punk, right? That we're strictly going to be using, you know, uh, economic friendly or not economic, but ecologically friendly technology. Right. And so what better way to express that than to have it be all plant-based, which is my idea in the first place, but also I just wanted humans to be, I wanted there to be a reason that you know they can kind of explain away the simulation aspect of it and to also explain away the idea that there's no outside of very rare circumstances you know extreme catastrophic death you know and i think part of that is essentially through a weird mutation of photosynthesis in a lot of ways like you're you're taking a lot of the hunger and pain and you know age and decay out of it in a lot of ways and I did want that to be in some way plant-based again, because fuck it. If we're going, you know, weird and utopic, why not go immortal as well? So like to make sure I understand in the, the, hu the human race, which I imagine is either like either sleeping or in some way plugged into this like plant-based neural network, they themselves are photosynthesizing. So their bodies can take in nutrients just like a plant. Among other things. Yeah. I think that, that would I, I think that it helps with a post-scarcity society where people will still eat and they'll still consume things, but because of the way that we've integrated technology, it now is make it much easier and, and the cost of resources significantly less 
compared to where we were previously. Because if you look at a lot of the devastating technology that we're using now, a lot of it does come down to uh, consumption. And in a lot of cases, it can also be tracked down to consumption for food or for, uh, you know, that kind of, for sustenance, essentially. Do, do you see like the humans in the simulate in the veil? Are they like, you know, a series of like glorified tombs and that they're sleeping in these tombs and they're experiencing this consensus reality? Or do you envision them like interacting kind of like in a holodeck situation where it's like half simulation from the plants and they're actually moving around? That's the one thing I'm trying to grapple with, like for, for all of us. Like what's this? That's the actual environment that they're in in the veil. That's actually a really good question. And because Chris is the one who kind of introduced it, I'd rather him answer that. So I thought that they would have physical bodies. Uh, and kind of, ooh, if we want to take from a like a, a motif of some kind, it could be literally the tree of life kind of thing of all of these roots spreading out and these little pods filled with uh, the consciousness of people. And maybe they don't fully have built bodies kind of thing because the deterioration and kind of resources going into it, they're like little seeds waiting to be uh, planted outside of it. So, so they're in a, so to take Rob's concept, then like they, we've reconfigured humanity to use the sun to, so that we ourselves can get our resources like plants do, but our minds still experience like a world we're used to while the world heals. Is that what we're kind of like going towards? Oh wow, that's that's really kind of crazy, actually. Now that I'm, it's now weird, that I'm, right? <laughs> yeah, that's like utterly bizarre in a way I wasn't expecting, but that's pretty cool. Because I want to make sure like we're all on the same page with that, because I feel like we can tie in our concepts to it. So now I know like the things I was thinking about, I can twist them to make them work that way. But that's really cool. I mean, I I feel like my I I feel like most of my stuff kind of fits within the simulation anyway. But man, okay, yeah, that's that's pretty dope. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with your technology? Because we're at the end of tech at this point. So I wanted to bring us back to furries because I feel like we had a, a brief brush with furries and I thought I could bring that back. Especially I have no idea what you're referring to. <laughs> Since we know we're in a friendly and this is like utopian society. So we have furries are people like furries too. So the, obviously we don't have, I'm thinking of, what I'm thinking of is um the people who, who experience this consensus reality while they're dreaming in this kind of, as people, like while they're sleeping, um, they're, when they're born, um, they're paired with um, like a pet that's kind of like a familiar. Um, and this entity um, it either has, I guess it's a simulation, has a part of their consciousness bond, bonded to it. So in a way, like the pet itself contains aspects of you in it. Um, and it, it's a reflection of you in some ways, but for life, that pet follows you. And so I guess it, since this is a consensus reality, the pet is virtual then, um, but the pet itself contains like a fragment of you. So it's in a sense, you're familiar. So everyone in the society has these like these um, familiars that they that they that follow them around and that they're able to confide in um, that are kind of like their closest friends um, in a sense um, that they're born with and that they die with. And so I wanted to have it kind of be like a, you know, someone's a piece of a little piece of your spirit that follows you around in a sense. Yeah, that's very similar to something like the golden compass, for example, uh, where your familiars are literally part of your soul or a representation of your soul. 
Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's what I get for not reading that entire series. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. You didn't miss that much. Uh, but but what I do want to talk about, actually, what I what I do want to heap praise upon is the idea that you're creating, you know, like this familiar, which is essentially expounding upon. I'm sorry, expanding upon the theme that we have of connection and bonds and also empathy with another living creature. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that you're creating a, a, a bond with yourself first yeah. speaks volumes. And I think that's really smart. Um, what, how, how, how do you see this kind of animal companion going? Is it an expression in this? Do you choose what the familiar is or how would that work exactly? I think part of the lesson or the purpose of it is like you're saying, part of it is like understanding yourself over time because it's reflect a part of you is reflected in it. So maybe like either um, a insecurity you have or maybe some um, positive quality you have is reflected in the animal. But at the same time, I want it to be that you have to learn to take care of nature in some way. And so you have to learn to take care of this creature and nourish it. That's really cool. I, I kind of like the idea more that it's a representation of your insecurity yeah. because then it's something that you can learn from more. Well, maybe it's cowardly. Know. If there's a cowardliness in you. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even like if it's a rat, you know, like yeah. then you're going to, you're probably going to get made fun of for having a rat familiar. It's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I, you know, it's like, I'm not even like that. And then like through time you recognize actually there's a lot of good things about this familiar and there's a lot of good things that I, it's, it's I also like, on, yeah. Yeah, but it's also like you you learning to appreciate the smaller or insignificant or even shittier things, you know, like <laughs> things that other people would otherwise look down on, you know, and I, I can imagine that you're looking essentially at weird opposites from personalities, mm-hmm. you know, like I imagine a, a cute petite girl with a giant bear. Yeah, yeah, that's what I want, like weird, weird combinations like that. Yes, I, I, <laughs> I agree. I agree. I, I'm, I'm kind of. I think we're on the same page there, where we want. It's a confrontation of some aspect of yourself that you dislike. Yeah, and I, I like that a lot, actually. Okay, I do have one thing that I wanted to say. Oh, I was just going to compare this Digimon. Digimon. Oh, Digimon, yeah. Sorry, say it again. Say it again. I want I want a clear <laughs> version of that so I can go off on it because I love Digimon. I just feel like Daniel, have you seen Digimon? I during the whole Pokemon craze, which was how old were we then? Like maybe like you know, thirteen or fourteen. I know that was, yeah. that was one of the cartoons. <laughs> uh, I would I would just like to say that I I love Digimon uh, unabashedly. It was like my one of my first tastes into being a big weeb is <laughs> watching the first season of Digimon. Also, I have to say, Digimon has grown way more than Pokemon has. Like Pokemon is always going to be more popular, but Digimon all like ultimately has better games and and do way more interesting things with the premise than Pokemon ever does. Yeah, I think that's true. Hot take. Yeah. Hot take, but a lot of people agree with me. So, you know, fucking send that hate mail to worldbuildwithus at gmail.com if you got a problem with it. Um, I Actually, so th- this idea of learning through your familiar, I actually want to get into that because it ties in a little bit with the conflict that I had in mind. Cool. So because we're in a post-scarcity society, because we're in, you know, a simulation and all of that, 
one of the, I was trying to figure out uh, a, an interesting way to create conflict that isn't physical and isn't necessarily emotional. I didn't want to get into, you know, dueling artists or anything like that. Uh, what I wanted to get into was uh, something that I think a lot of people in our generation actually struggle with, which is the idea of ennui, uh, you know, like kind of finding purpose within yourself. And I wanted to, and, and I actually do, I actually did the thing that Daniel always asks me to do. So I actually prepared in advance this time, which is to make it like t tangible or physical in some way. It's, it's actually essentially a, a coming of age ritual called the 12 lifetimes where you, in your youth, you travel to 12 vastly different cultures and societies and planets and try and basically, and, and you live what is essentially a lifetime there growing up in that culture, learning to love what they love. And then you do it 11 more times. And that way it's, essentially a spiritual wheel that you kind of process and only after you walk the 12 lifetimes are you considered an adult in the society and you can kind of pick and choose where you want to go based on you know what what society and what value you held the mo that meant the most to you you know it, and also the choosing in and of itself is also a really important aspect of becoming an adult as well I love that. That that's so. Um, that's so. Like I feel like almost Star Trek too, in the sense that you're trying to fulfill your best self, and so the way that you're doing that, at least in the setting, is you're forced to kind of take a trek into different societies to learn what is your best self by being exposed to different things. Exactly, and and I I was thinking about travel because I think travel often brings out the person who you are the most. You know, it, it kind of distills you down into a raw essence. And some people really hate travel. Some people thrive on... Yes, you, I was thinking of you specifically, yes. I hate traveling. I would be right. like the girl that doesn't want to move from, from, from planet to planet. I'm like, oh, just let me stay home. You know? <laughs> and then on your 12th lifetime, you're like, all right, it's okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but but that's the, the general concept is I think traveling through exposure to different lifestyles and through different experiences and different peoples, I think it actually does create, and again, creates bonds among the 12 different lifestyles and also creates this sense of empathy. You're like, Oh, mm -hmm. I don't agree with that, but I can see why you would. I spent time in a similar situation, that kind of thing. Are there only 12 areas that they can visit or is part of the choice what you were saying as like to reflect them? I would imagine that the people, the the empaths, you know, the the people beyond the veil, they essentially create the path or they create the 12 planets that they would discover and explore. Also, I, there might be something to the algorithm that you brought up in the technology aspect of it as well, where every 12 lifetime, you know, every 12 lifetime is different, mm -hmm. but it's based partly on the algorithm and it's based partly on... Uh, you know, maybe the empaths kind of influence as well. Yeah, because they would have, they would know. Not only would they know like physical things about you, uh, the empaths that is, but they'd also know about like your mental pattern in a sense, because that's really what you are inside this tree. So they could they could guidance you to to, to locations among those twelve points. Maybe there's like a million billion different places you could go, but they pick twelve that suit you and your path. 
Yeah. Hmm. Oh, actually, have any of you seen the Black Mirror episode, Hang the DJ? Oh, I. that sounds familiar. I saw all the episodes. Which one was that one exactly? That's the one where they you're, these two people are basically put into a dating app, but it's like a lifetime system. Oh, yeah, thing. yeah. That yeah. one was actually a positive ending kind of one, wasn't yes. it? Yes, mm-hmm. it was. And also, I think it's pretty appropriate considering, you know, where that's the algorithm. It's like, hey, we're choosing, you know, we're choosing these mates. And the way that you get to your certain path is, okay, we're going to give you the one that you really want, like first or second. Mm -hmm. And then the seven or like the seven after that are all going to be terrible and make you want to go back to that one. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, I think something like that might actually work, you know, where it's like, it's, it's slightly manipulative, but it's also testing out what works and what doesn't. They gain information from each subsequent Mm -hmm. lifetime that you would spend. I mean, it makes sense. That's what I like about this. And it makes sense in with the concept of this neural network and Chris's algorithm. Yeah. And, and again, I, I wanted to, the, the main theme in, in my mind that I do want to continue to think on is bonds. And I think creating bonds by living 12 lifetimes is pretty damn good. <laughs> it's funny because my conflict, my conflict is similar to that, but it creates a conflict out of, out of that situation. So go ahead, roll right into it, Daniel. <laughs> like I had the idea that children um, are in a society are probably really smart. So most children are savants in some way and they're moved from mentor to mentor. So I could, I'm gonna adjust this to mean that they move from path to path, right? But I also had the notion that you don't really have specific parents. Like you're raised by each um, group you're sent to. So if we're using the 12 path situation, it would be like you're moving from mentor to mentor who are in a sense, all your family and all your parents. Um, and so in order to get like, once they get past these to the 12 paths, they might've selected what they really want to do in life. So maybe they've learned, I'm going to be like a, a, a pilot or something, right? That's what my, my skill set has led me to. So they kind of end up picking where they want to be. But the, the reaction to that in conflict, I wanted there to be a, a youth counterculture or like a punk culture that rejects the notion of of them having to having to figure out their path like they they, the the counterculture thinks that this is a rigid structure that's been imposed on them and they don't want to be part of it and and they want to break away they want to go beyond the veil and and so they have they're they're exposed the temptations of the man in gray potentially and so there's a conflict in the society of like you know doing what traditionally makes sense to, to build you know your path and the the few who are like no i don't want to do that i'm going to do my own thing and i'm going to alienate myself from society because i feel like there's something more beyond this that i'm not aware of that's really cool actually and part of me okay uh there's a slightly sinister side to this that i'm thinking of where <laughs> there's um uh there's an author who wrote a book called capitalist realism which essentially breaks down how capitalism works in a lot of ways. And one of the ways it does so is through pre-corporation, which is the idea that, you know, you're going to have this way to express your rebellion, but it's done so entirely through the system as it is. Mm-hmm. And so people who, who are in this counterculture eventually recognize that everything that they're doing is to feed into the system even more. I feel like that's probably what happens when you grow out of the system, you know, of punk, right? Mm -hmm. You know, where it's like you reject the system 
until you realize that it works. <laughs> right. And there's, and there's no way to fight against it anymore. Right. right. You know, or it's like, Oh, this is th- my expression of rebellion has already been created for me. Right. It's, it, it's not. And that's why it's a youth counterculture because yes. they, they realize and they like, once they get older, they realize that there's a purpose to the setup, you know? Um, but I like the temptation. I like the idea that there is a tempter out there. And that's that man in gray who, as we know, was an empath and wants to shut the veil down. So that's why he's instigating them kind of behind the scenes. I still believe that the man in gray is an empath. Like he's, yeah, yeah. he's just doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's just doing it in a very uh, subtle. He, he's basically, no, he's basically playing devil's advocate. He, he's, yeah, he's the that's part that's necessary. He's like, Hey, you need a way to express rebellion. And right. I'm going to allow that to, Oh, I like that. So maybe he he's part of, oh, he's one of the functions of, in the sense, the algorithm and the way the empaths work. He's like the yeah. one to push things ahead in his own way, but he's part of the whole scheme. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Chris, what was your conflict? Part of my conflict was involving uh, kind of like the man in gray. To go once again back to him, we were saying that he was someone who believes that humanity can't get ready in a simulation it can't uh can't evolve can't further their uh their knowledge unless they go into a world with stakes correct Mm -hmm. right the conflict that i wanted it was him kind of gathering people to his team and his way of thinking i wanted him to gather acolytes that could uh be with his way of thinking and kind of cause this uh, resurgence of people that want to leave the simulation and want to experience the real world, even if they're not ready. Are they, are they like a secret kind of group or are they like really loud protester types? I viewed them as they are loud in their own way. Like they will purposely point out, the limitations of a simulation. I'm not really sure how they would display that, but imagine if they did things with their knowledge that made people kind of, oh yeah, this is all fake, isn't it? So we're saying that people do know that they're in they're in a, like a, a, a temporary space, essentially, in some way. Yeah, but I believe there is something to be said about... Uh, suspension of disbelief or kind of just getting into it like if you spent 2000 years in a dream mm-hmm. and you woke up would you be sure you were dreaming or would you think of this was the dream kind of thing mm-hmm. so they poke they poke at certainty in a sense then you're saying correct and to go back how we wanted things to be hopeful and whimsical i wanted them to do this Maybe it's not the man in gray because he seemed a little bit sinister, but I wanted it to be whimsical villainy in the sense of just over the top kind of stuff that doesn't fit with reality of superhero like stuff. So you're talking about like a Mr. Mixie Spicklick type thing. Oh, yeah. Where it's like was... cartoonish, cartoonish mischief type thing. Yes. So they're like they're like exploiting the system to show that this isn't quite right. This reality we live in. Yeah. One thing that I do want to point out that I really love about that idea is the uh, is surrounds. You're essentially forcing people to 
choose what reality is mm-hmm. on a, on a higher, deeper philosophical sense, right? Like when you say, you know, if you live in a dream for 2000 years, do you even know what awake is anymore? Mm-hmm. And I think that because that that's a hard question to ask. And I think that's what that group is essentially asking. They're like and villain think, philosophers then in a sense. Yes. I, I wanted to point that out that yes, essentially the, the conflict here is philosophical. Oh, I like that. It, actually, in a lot of ways, you could actually approach them like Dadaists, yeah. you know, where they're pointing out the absurdity of art and stuff like that. So I could see that. Yeah. So Chris, you basically created Dadaists. Yeah, that's I love awesome. That. Yeah, that's <laughs> hey. cool. They parade a bunch of toilets around. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's it's more along the lines of, hey, how can we break reality? Yeah. How yeah. can we break every rule that people already know to show them the absurdity of the simulation and how much it doesn't matter? And they're only. This, it seems like they're only villainous in the sense that they're attacking the the status philosophy. Rather, they're not like saying this whole thing is bad and I want to burn it down. They're just saying like. To, to what extent will this be effective? And they're questioning the apparatus. So they're kind of necessary, like in the in the the grand scheme of things, among all the philosophy of all the people who are thinking about the society they live in. Like they're for, a questioning voice. For sure. They're they're asking people to make, you know, they're they're questioning whether or not this is valid or whether or not this simulation is helpful at all. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Great job, Chris. I'm yeah. proud of you. Yeah, and I thought Every villain also needs a group of heroes that are not able to break the simulation or unwilling to break the simulation. And I wanted it to be the people who make the algorithm seamlessly work in the world and try to make it as real as possible. And the way that I was going to call them was the Order of the Gilded Cage. And... That's they, way more sinister than it sounds. I, I know. Mean, like, that's nice. Like, and bad. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like you. It's like you're you're treating it like you're in a prison, and I don't like that idea. I don't like the name. Well, that's the thing. They understand that this is a prison, but they want humanity to get out. They're jailers of rehabilitation. It's a birdcage, is what they're saying. It's okay. like it's necessary to to keep you safe. Is, yeah. is a school a prison? Yes, <laughs> it's a pri- it's it's in it's, okay. If I take it's like a it's a pri- it's a temporary prison. It's a falsification of the real world the kids will go into, but it's a it's a necessary prison. See, I don't necessarily see this simulation as a prison. I see it more as a school. Like this is prep yeah. school for for when you're actually ready to make a utopia. You know, when you're ready to exit the simulation and and create a culture and society that lasts forever well can people leave the simulation simulation voluntarily Hmm. i feel like it shouldn't be allowed but that's not utopia then yeah i I, I agree i think it can't be allowed because they don't have bodies well no i think that you should have some sense of choice right like there has to be some sense of agency to cast off the simulation because otherwise there is some level of fascism to it, right? There's some level of authoritarianism that you're taking away choice and what's worse than taking away someone's choice. Well, maybe you have to achieve it though. Like, so if, if these people, like they're essentially minds at the moment, like they have bodies in the sense that they're these seed pod things. Maybe the empaths are people who have achieved that. And that's why they're outside the simulation to guide it. Wait a minute. 
I, I could see that they do allow people to leave, but they make sure that they make an informed choice. They show them what the inside world can be. And due to the limitation, they're like, we can't really get you to come back in. Right. So, yes, you can. Like that. That's perfect. Yeah. I we don't think you're ready and we love you. Please don't do the, the world of ruin outside. Like once we embody you, we can't put you back in the simulation because you it will have to break you to do that. And that's what makes the villains actually like they want people to leave, but they know if they leave, there won't be the voice telling people to leave. Right. Interesting. Okay. That, I like that. I like that. They're okay. actually the, they're both heroes. They're just two different sides of, uh, or not morality, but I guess the philosophical uh, sense of what is the right thing to do, and they're all part of the algorithm. They just don't know it. Do you do you see them as uh, like the gilded cage? Like, are they in a sense like benevolent programmers? Like, so are they in the company of the empaths, or are they like in the simulation and they're working on parts of the simulation actively? There are people who have realized that it's a simulation and but they're not empaths, but they're like, yeah, we do know that this is a simulation. Stop being dicks and ruining it for everybody. Uh, they're like philosophers more so than like actual programmers of it. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, maybe they have, uh, uh, we have the man in gray. I, I guess we could, uh, we could have the king in yellow. No. Um, <laughs> or the crimson king. No, God, no. <laughs> hey, I'm uh, down for a 60s acid rock if you guys are. Yeah. I was referring to the Dark Tower series, but yes. <laughs> That's where See, it's from. I was going to say, yeah, King Crimson is, Stephen King is a big But remember my music stopped in 1998, though. Remember? <laughs> <laughs> but it's the 60s. It's before 1998. No, no, he only 1998. Yeah, I only know up to that 1998 and onward. That's all I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, no, just the year 1988. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Your faction actually, uh, I, I didn't necessarily see it this way when I first created my faction, but I think mine works pretty well with yours because I was thinking that I want, I'm going to bring you through a journey, all right, of, of my faction <laughs> because they are the police, right? They, they are essentially what functions as the police. However, I wanted them to be pro wrestlers. Oh God. <laughs> yes. And because I, I was like, okay, what other function? Because, because the one, there's this whole organization uh, that serve essentially as police because they're going to be tough and have an expression of physical aggression and physicality in general. And I love pro wrestling. So there's also, there's a theatricality to it as well, where it's, it's, the police are there to protect and serve and entertain. And to your point, there's also another side of them where there's a rehabilitation side where they try and take people and bring them into the fold. And they basically uh, enforce community service to try and teach people the better way. You know, like if you have a troubled kid, they take them into the police and they teach them as much as possible and they try and get them through something outside of, or not even necessarily a kid, but a troubled person. And they try and do something that's outside of the 12 lifetimes to be like, Hey, this is how we can express it. This is how we can do it. And to kind of go with what you were saying, Chris, this is just a lower level of that. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, another wall of ice to help people be like, Hey, are you really sure that you want to leave? Are you really sure? And this this police 
pro wrestling force are there as like kind of like a the, that's the first line of defense essentially right if if these people can't get through to them then there is a much higher chance that you know they're going to rebel even further have you ever seen mfkz no i haven't seen that what is that it's a movie on netflix but in it luchadors are from an ancient order of people who are trying to prevent the end of the world what? and yeah i loved it but and that's just a subplot in the movie but i can support this fully yeah yeah well the idea is like the police they're they're part police and part like monks like essentially for that's the idea that i had in mind and when also I re- they do it in a in a you know pro wrestling skin so i mean what I, what I really like about your concept is that um it it's a literal embodiment of like restorative justice and the concept of like instead of punishment um the punishment is going to be to make you be better basically so like they're they'll they'll pull them out of the 12 paths to like correct things essentially and send them back in so like and that's like a philosophy and i guess like a a, a philosophy i think is essentially in like the justice system so that's like really neat to see that in the form of, of luchadors especially yeah and i thought that the reason i chose pro wrestling as kind of like a rehabilitative thing is because one, it gives you something physical to do. So it helps you, I mean, by, by putting them through exhaustive programs, mm-hmm. you can essentially break them down physically to force them to focus on the mental, to focus on the emotional, whatever's breaking them down is you're, con- you're being confronted with it. That's, well, that's it's, it's literal it. too, which was which, which yeah. so cool. Cause I feel like that's what fantasies do is they take like the concept you're talking about, which is like breaking someone down to rebuild them and put them back together and put them back into the world. These guys literally do that to you. <laughs> like, right. And, and what they also do is by giving you characters to play in a pro wrestling sense, you're allowing a, a sense of expression of that therapy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's and, and not only that, but it's also like you because I, I don't know how much of a big pro wrestling nerd you guys are. Probably not very much. Not but at all. I love pro wrestling. It is it's 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 so dumb and I love it. And it's like, it, but but what you learn in wrestling, right, is it's not about actually hurting someone. It's mm-hmm. more about learning your best to protect that other person. And what it teaches you is just how important working together actually is to put on the best show possible. You know, you don't want to hurt your partner. That That is like the biggest break of trust in pro wrestling is to hurt your partner. And people lose careers over that shit. You know, like if they, if you're working with someone and they hurt you and you're like a bigger guy than them, then guess what? They're not going to work. You know, like that's just straight up how it is. If they get a reputation of not, of hurting people, then the trust is broken and you can't continue that bond you know and that's why i think it works so well it goes right back to chris's melee too like the melee as their main you know form of of combat you know exactly and i wanted to take that idea that we had and make it even more performative and i think that it's a great expression of that but it's so wacky i just think it's it's funny because we've got like digimon you know pets you know, we've got like these, the, the people themselves are actually seed orbs, but they've got wrestlers inside. And then there's like two groups of philosophers who are disagreeing about the, the situation they're in. <laughs> I think one of my favorite things about this setting is that it is simultaneously wacky, but also very serious, depending yes. on which, depending on which aspect you really want to focus on. You could just have like 
fucking uh, pro wrestling police squad action. No, 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 no. I like blending the two where they're just like, all right, well, what do we do? Just like we fight them in the ring. (laughs) (laughs) They have like a disagreement philosophically. Like, I know how we're going to resolve this and it's going to involve wrestling, you know? (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. I'm so down with this. Yes. I, I I was a little trepidatious about how I was going to approach this, but now that it's out there, I'm like, this is so satisfying. No, I feel like it feels so good. The villains being literal heels and over the top heels at that. I just love it. Because again, it's an expression of your villainy. It's the perfect way to, to express that. It's great. Ah! So many capes. Yes, absolutely. Well, capes. You definitely don't watch wrestling. <laughs> I do not. I do not watch wrestling. <laughs> oh man! All right, uh, Daniel, bring us on home. Wrap up the episode with your faction. Let's do it, baby. Um, so mine were called the people from beyond the veil. Um, and I was going back to a couple things. One being um, that I, I always one of my rules I establish is that the only real punishment they have is to exile you from their society. Um, and two, uh, other than the restorative justice, which is what the, the wrestler cops are watching out for, so they don't have to do that to you. <laughs> and and so that should be super rare that this happens. And two, that the world outside the veil is still healing. So it's a world of ruin that's partially, you know returning to nature so i thought well maybe you know there's probably a history involved in the creation of the veil itself that has been lost because it's been such a long time who knows how how many thousands of years have passed across all these worlds that have been damaged that are now healing that there's all these veils out there so i thought perhaps on one of the worlds or maybe several of the worlds at some point one of the solutions they had to creating the veil was to make humans be able to survive the world of ruin so they have, there are humans out there who live outside the veil, who don't know about what's inside the veil or, or how it works, who are essentially androids, like the physical kind or the, the fleshy kind. They were constructed to survive in the, in the world of ruin and the kind of environment that it has. But they've been out there for thousands of years. So now they're like regular people in the same way that people are inside the veil, but they're living in like the, ru- the these ruins that, you know, have underbrush uh, has grown over them you know these skyscrapers have been reclaimed by the land and they've made like a society out there and these people are on the outside looking in trying to find the veil and they see the veil as kind of like this eden that they want to get back into but we've established that that's not quite doable so which is kind of cool because now um you know there's these cities overtaken by green they're living in it they're they, they know about the world as it is and that it's healing uh, but they may not know that there's humanity sleeping and that they're apart from so my concept is that they're the people from beyond the veil and they're separate from the veil society. So you might have characters who like look upon the veil as something completely different than those who are inside of it. That's really heartbreaking, Daniel. <laughs> like that, that hurts, but that actually reminds me of um, Arthur C. Clarke's childhood's end. Have you ever yeah. seen that? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, so- I guess the, the positive side would be that like, they're looking for an ideal, like this ideal, utopia right to go back to the eden or the 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 veil but i guess the realization is that they are in that Eden. like the world is healing and it's actually healed and they're living in it now so they they don't realize that they're already in the good place you know (laughs) i I also or i mean maybe they just they don't they don't know that what they have is really good so they're looking on looking across to the other yard not realizing that their yard is just fine you know 
I like the idea that they're gardeners or shepherds or midwives, you know, where they're ushering in the next phase of humanity. And there's something so pure and wholesome about that in general, but it's also, they, they have something to learn as well because there is some level of jealousy within that as well, where it's like, yes, we're doing it and we're smart and reasonable and empathic enough to know that this is for the greater good. And it's a very good thing but it's also something that they desperately want as well. Mm-hmm. And that that's where the heartbreak for me comes in because it's like, man, I want you to have help, you know, peace. And know. they have peace and they have like mm-hmm. this immense peace, but it's also this something that Along they with. know they can never get and they can never have. And it's like, oh, my heart. I can imagine like one of the, let's say someone from Beyond the Veil takes this like dangerous journey to go to this this tower that really is where one of the empaths resides and oversees things. And when they get to that empath, you know, they're thinking, oh, I'm finally going to have access to the veil and learn what's, you know, what where humanity is. And when they realize what actually is the case, they look back on their society from that tower and they're like, actually, the veil is in the other direction that I came from, you know, and that could be like the uplifting part of it. Oh, okay. All right. Ooh, man. The veil was the fringe you made along the way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm also kind of thinking, are, are these like people beyond the veil? Are they the children of exiles from like those who leave? Yes, I think also the, the exiles end up finding them when they have to wander into the world of ruin, and then they get taken care of by them. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's you're you're taken care of either way, and yeah. I imagine like there's there's some people who leave, you know, like they 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 see the world as it really is, mm-hmm. and they immediately feel regret, and yeah. then once they're taken in by these, you know, the people beyond the veil there's kind of this breakdown moment where they recognize what they've lost mm-hmm. and it's like, but, but they're still treated with such kindness and empathy that it just, it breaks them in a way that like is really powerful yet healing. You know? Yeah. It's like a rebirth. Cause like now they've been given a body outside yeah. the veil that feels real pain for once, but suddenly they feel real love too. You know? Oh yeah. So essentially everyone gets what they want in the yeah. end. Right. Yeah. They, they gain the freedom that they sought and thought that they wanted so much. And, and yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love that. That's really cool. cool. Oh. I think we were able to avoid a, s- a lot of sad. <laughs> I know. Yeah. There's no no, so bad. Yeah. There, uh, you know what? We can bring in bit. Actually, no, here's where we bring in Palpatine. Here's where we bring in Palpatine. Okay. Pro wrestlers. Yes. Guess, okay. I keep calling him Big Papa Palps because <laughs> Scott Steiner is Big Papa Pump. Oh That's God. the reference that I keep making. And yes, it's there. There's now a combination where, yes, Emperor Palpatine is a pro wrestling heel <laughs> named Big Papa Palps. I love it. It's now canon in this world. I'm satisfied. <laughs> we are not going to top that. So this is where the episode ends. For the love of God. All right. Uh, thank you so much for listening. You've been wonderful. We appreciate you so much. And remember that if you want to help create worlds like this, you can always email us at worldbuildwithus at gmail.com or you can send us a tweet at Let's World Build. Just let us know how you're feeling. Make sure that you're doing okay. We really do hope that you're doing okay, by the way. It's, it's rough out there. But remember that we love you very much. You're going to get through the week. And we'll see you next time.